Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line. I'm your host, Guy Snodgrass, and joining me is co-host Mark Solomons. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Guy. Welcome back from Texas, and I hope everybody's doing a, you know, working for the weekend here. You bet. Had a great time, as Mark alluded to. I'd actually spent the last week down in Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. That's my hometown. A lot of friends and family still there, so it was great to get down there for some business. And, of course, to you read a lot of, in the news, and you see – a lot of uh, hyperventilating about travel in America. Obviously, as long as you're wearing the proper personal protective equipment, you know your PPE, like your mask and everything else you might want, it's uh, relatively safe. But it was it was nice to see how the airlines handled it. They handled it very well. Got to Texas. Uh, I would tell you that the restrictions there are certainly much looser than they are here in the state of Virginia. I think when you're out and about, you see maybe one-fourth or maybe one-third of the people wearing masks. Everybody else is kind of running around like it's like it's normal. So we'll see how that turns out. Uh, fingers crossed, but I do know today I saw a report saying that Texas is one of the, the leading states now with a uh, significant uptick in infections. But, you know, without much context behind it, it's hard to know what that's going to lead to, if anything. But we're in the warmer weather. We're in the uh, summer season. So hopefully now as people break out of those confined spaces indoors, that'll help out too. And then you get back to Virginia and uh, a lot of news had been breaking here in Virginia, right, Mark? Yeah, it's been a crazy uh, 72 hours, that's for sure. Like you said, I was gone for the last week, and we had already recorded our conversation with Joe Larson. If you didn't catch the previous episode, it was fantastic. It was our second of a three-part series on artificial intelligence with retired U.S. Marine mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Joe Larson. He had been the deputy director for Project Maven, which sounds great, but it was the Uh, more fancy term as the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team. And it's all about bringing artificial intelligence into the Department of Defense in a very real, tangible way. So the downside was we'd recorded that episode before I even went down to Texas. And so you had the George Floyd death occur during that period of time. We didn't get a chance to touch on it then, but certainly since we're doing this special episode, I think we should touch on it now. So I'm curious, Mark, you know, you've been following this closely. What What do you think about what you've seen so far? And of course, its impacts on uh, national security, foreign policy, the military? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think the first thing we all got to get our heads around it is how, you know, in the 21st century, does this still happen where you know, an innocent black man is killed on you know, live photo, you know, videotaping his death there by the you know, Minneapolis police force? It just is unexplainable. I just cannot understand it in this day and age. But, you know, I think uh, DOJ and a lot of other folks are going to have to put their heads collectively together and get to the bottom of why this keeps happening. It's just uh, sad on so many levels. And of course, that has led to a number of other things that we're going through right now. But at the end of the day, it's whether it's uh, you know, the military or the police force, the use of force and you know, achieving your objectives, whether you're, you're you know, keeping your society safe or defending from a foreign adversary, there's right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it. I would 
be the first to say what the, those four Minneapolis police officers did was the wrong way to go about business. If somebody wants to disagree, I certainly would like to hear why. Suspect you're not going to get much disagreement from anybody across the country at this point in time. In fact, even today, as I was uh, taking a uh, ride and with Uber back to the house and, and the gentleman driving was watching the ESPN interview with Drew Brees, quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, where he had caught a lot of flack because he decided to wade back into this uh, debate about Colin Kaepernick and kneeling and saying it was about the flag. So, you know, I mean, I think that the entire country, I guess that's a convoluted way of saying the entire country seems like they're fairly on board with what happened in Minneapolis and just how tragic that turn of events was. Of course, then you have the follow on with largely peaceful protests around the country. Unfortunately, you can say around the world for that matter. It's a global, uh, global following now people protesting around the world. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and, and of course it also just reinforces America's leadership position in the world that what happens here gets sent around the world and people respond and react to it either in solidarity or they use it against you. And we'll get to that point in a minute, but now you have a situation where uh, the military gets drawn into the fight. So, you know, you were here in the local area in DC. So kind of want you walk our listeners through some of, you know, the quick thumbnail sketch of what happened with secretary Esper and uh, general Milley and the use of the military. Right. So you know, a couple of days ago that, you know, the, uh, the uh, videos released there, and everybody's you know, astounded with the, the you know George Floyd uh, murder. And next thing you know, the protesters are coming out. Obviously, D.C. where, where we're at there had quite a few come out there and marching down the uh, the uh, square there. And uh, at the end of the day, I think it was on Tuesday, uh, SecDef and you know and the chairman Joe Milley were asked to go meet the president downtown in front of the uh, St. John's Episcopal Church there. And they didn't know what the purpose was. They thought they were going to see the troops. And uh, en route to the uh, the square, the local D.C. uh, police are on horseback clearing the crowds out with rubber bullets and tear gas and all kinds of uh, escalatory measures to clear the square. And as we eventually saw, all for the purpose of a photo op. Now, if you look at the pictures of Secretary of Defense Esper and General Milley, they look like they're both completely caught off guard and surprised. And you know, I'm sure they didn't appreciate what's going on and did their best at the initial first cut to try and uh, explain their way out of it. But you know, like with most things, you're at the top of a hole. The first thing you want to do is stop digging. And, uh, they didn't. They, you know, at least Secretary Esper continued to dig, and his battle space comment kind of made things worse, and that ignited the whole media frenzy with the people saying, "Look, you know, this is America. You know, we aren't, you know, trying to clear out Iraq or Afghanistan here. We're calling things battle space." So that didn't go over too well. Tuesday, you know, he had to apologize, and then Wednesday he came back out and explained his position. And of course, amongst all that, people were talking about more people getting activated, more active duty troops getting activated. And next, you know, they're talking about the insurrection act coming into play and, you know, all these active duty forces around the country getting activated to, you know, essentially impose martial law. So make a long story short, it really got blown out of proportion. So the secretary had to do damage control. And to his credit, he did come out and say, look, I do not support this insurrection act. Now we're going to see how that plays out with uh, President Trump and his staff apparently has ruffled some feathers there in the White House. But anyway, he was correct in, in saying that we are not heading anywhere towards martial law or 
you know, a military you know, revolution here in America. At the end of the day, it was a poor, poorly executed use of police force for conducting a photo op. There are a number of different ways somebody could have gone about it, but it was not probably discussed or let out to very many people. So, you know, you keep things close. You don't get a, you know, all 360 eyes view on how to how to get at a problem. And we are where we are now. And I think the best thing we can do is just let our listeners know. And hopefully I'm sure the country's paying attention. This is not any kind of martial law. We're, we're not, you know, headed towards some seven days of May scenario here. It's going to work itself out. And I think protesters, you know, using their right to protest are, for the most part, doing it peacefully. Are, are there rioters and looters out there? Sure. I mean, again, the police are dealing with that, but uh, it's all going to work itself out there. The big thing is to keep picture, keep focused on is the safety, you know, from the corona, uh, making sure the protesters are heard and George Floyd is uh, properly paid the right amount of attention. And then we can eventually get back to business. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, I think that's a great summation. And, and it's an important one, too, because I think the last time we checked, we had somewhere on the order of 39 or 40 foreign nations represented amongst our pool of listeners, which is terrific. It's a terrific reach. I know that uh, many of those came from a, from a speech I'd recently given um, to a group in the UK, a bunch of senior military leaders from a number of different nations, about 150 of those leaders. So it's great that they're listening. Uh, and that's why it's important sometimes to, to walk the dog a little bit on these issues to make sure that uh, not only for our domestic listeners, but of the international listeners as well, that they have the full context of what's going on. I agree with you. In fact, I was asked that today during an interview about the current situation. And the interviewer had asked, was I concerned about the imposition of martial law or would, would there be a possibility for a military coup? This is coming from an interviewer who is from Japan. So once again, that gives you a little window of for other nations when they see this kind of chaotic action and response inside the United States, this is where their mind goes. So like you said, there's, we're, no, we're nowhere near anything that looks like uh, a coup or martial law. I did want to dispel one myth because this is something that always came up when, when I worked for Secretary Mattis. People would always kind of pontificate, well, why doesn't, why doesn't he do X or why doesn't he do Y? And of course, now you've got a lot of people who are very displeased that Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley had walked with President Trump to the church for the photo op. And I guess my rejoinder would be, why do you think they have a choice? I mean, you, you serve at the pleasure of the president when he calls you to the White House to have a meeting and says, okay, everybody, we're going across the street. You don't raise your hand and say, hey, sir, actually, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I guess if you knew what the purpose was and you, and you gr- disagreed with it wholeheartedly, then I guess that's your uh, hill to die on and, and there you go. But uh, I just, you know, you have to put yourself in their shoes and say that they're, they're always trying to fulfill their duty to the president of the United States. And and uh, some of that means when he says, follow me, you're going you're gonna to follow him. Uh, the one other thing that I thought that had caught my attention that goes along with this entire scenario was the New York Times op-ed by Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton. He's a member of the Senate Armed Service Co- uh, Committee, so that's why it's important, because he basically said, send in the troops. You know, Mr. Mr. President, it's time to show that you're the law and order president. We need to send in the troops. They need to help restore good order and discipline around the country. And, and as you've noted, there are so many reasons why that would be such a horrible way to conduct business. I'm really surprised that Senator Cotton would even broach that subject other than just maybe for political points or to, or to 
to pander to the folks back home, but man. Um, and, and of course now let's get to the meat of the matter. That's the reason for this special episode we're releasing Friday morning is so we can cover down on, I guess really what uh, a lot of people have been talking about for the past two days. And that is the fact that secretary Mattis who had left office had, had widely said that he would not speak about his tenure with president Trump. In fact, for our listeners, if you didn't catch it at the time, you know, he came after me saying that but my decision, because I was concerned and wanted to share those concerns about the increasing political nature of the military, about how the military was getting drug into these types of food fights, the lack of coordination, the lack of communication with the American public, what that moment in time looked like. Secretary Mattis came after me for the decision to do that. Now, after some time and some reflection, Secretary Mattis has, I guess, realized that, that that's actually where he does need to be. So he's broken his, his vow of silence. Yesterday, he released the statement that Mark referred to earlier. And really, as, as, it's been, as it's been said, I mean, I agree. I mean, he excoriated the president that he once served, uh, said that he is openly dividing the country. He's not trying to unify it. He thrives on chaos, et cetera. So I'm curious. Obviously, you've read the letter. Curious first, as we start off with first principles, what did you think of Mattis's statement? Well, I mean, I, I'm looking at it right now. I was trying to pick out the key part that really pushed him over the edge. I mean, the title of it is, you know, James Mattis announces President Trump describes him as a threat to the Constitution. Now, that's pretty serious, a threat to the Constitution. So I think uh, probably the, the use of the military, obviously near and dear to all of us, uh, we've all served in various branches there. That's probably what pushed him over the edge, the inappropriate use and then uh, clearing out mostly innocent protesters. I mean, were there a couple of hoodlums intermixed uh, amongst that crowd? Sure, probably. But it certainly did not require the escalation of force to, you know, I say tear gas, you know, whatever smoke, whatever you want to say, it was used as as were the rubber bullets, and that was really not needed by by a long shot. So I think those two things really set him off and prompted the article. Now, I'm frankly, glad that he has decided to come on board. I know uh, Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic has been interviewing him over the past year on a number of different topics and hoping that he would uh, really tell us how he feels. And I think this is probably the first salvo of what's more to come. Now, what's important to also keep in mind is I know our listeners are going to say, well, he's being partisan, yada, yada. Well, Solomon's take is I think, you know, folks at that level, they can engage in political discussion without becoming partisan. You know, this is, I think, a good example of, you know, calling out something that, that is frankly not right. Now, it doesn't mean you have to say it, it's partisan it's it, it's a you know the right way and wrong way to do things this was clearly the wrong way so he's in fact way into a political issue without i don't think becoming partisan what's your what's your take guy it's interesting because mattis didn't really share much or show many of his cards so what's interesting is that i think because he took the pathway he did he left said he would never talk about it no matter what his time would come but it's not now then you fast forward to, to the current day. He decides to talk. So one, just, just the fact alone garners extraordinary attention, uh, probably more than he deserved based on the content of his letter. But he gets all that attention. He, he, he uses it to the maximum effect to grab, some, to, to grab notice and, and get people informed. And I think what, what's interesting is, to your point, you know, he hasn't talked really about any of, anything with his tenure. So is this the as you put it during one of our private conversations, is this the opening salvo of much more to come from Jim Mattis? Or is this simply a, for the moment in time, 
his concern about how the military is being politicized, how it's being drugged into partisan food fights and being misused within the borders of the United States in a very militaristic policing fashion, that that's what tripped him into speaking out to hopefully snap this back. So that certainly caught my eye. And in fact, he, you know, Mattis has caught flack on social media. He's caught some flack in mainstream media from people who study civilian military relationships. Uh, Alice Hunt Friend at CSIS, Corey Shockey from AEI, Jim Golby, who's written a lot about civil relations. You, you know, these are individuals who have spent a lot of time and effort and energy studying the relationship that exists between the military, the civilian leadership, and then the citizens that they serve. And they didn't necessarily embrace Mattis's position. In fact, I believe it was Alice who really kind of lit into Mattis saying, hey, you're trying to have it both ways. You, want, you took a political position as the Secretary of Defense. You, you knowingly cast off your four stars as a general. But as soon as you're out, you want to rush right back and claim the title of general. And that's how you want America to refer to you and think about you. And, and that is true because we, we talked about that when I was in Mattis's office. So, you know, it's just a, it's an interesting position in period of time. The one thing that I guess we should bat around maybe a little bit more is just, did this move the needle for anybody? Do you think that members of the military had their opinions changed or their minds changed because Mattis suddenly decided to speak out? Do you feel that this is the tipping point that people have expected to be a long time in coming and that so, you know, a group of people speak out around a flashpoint and suddenly you see the scale starting to tip away from President Trump? Or do you believe that this is just another flash in the pan? No, I mean, to, to your point there, I think you know, all parties are camped in. And it's baked in the cake at this point moving forward. What I think, you know, what, you know not only Mattis, but, you know, Admiral Stravitas and, and Mullen there, with all of them making their statements, what I think they're trying to do is calm you know, the populace, U.S. population writ large there to let everybody know, look, there's not some insurrection coming. Uh, as far as the politics go, I mean, whether you're Democrat or Republican, uh, that I don't think is going to have the needle move one way or the other. Frankly, I'm surprised that Senator Murkowski came up on the net today and said, well, she's glad that Joe Mattis opened the can up there. But of course, nobody else behind her is chimed in as of yet. Democrat side there, they've all said, you know, what Trump was doing, the photo op is outrageous. You know, same same uh, story we've been hearing on that side. And the military, for the most part, they they are doing uh, what they do. They're following the order from their from their next hire and uh, doing things uh, lawfully there. I mean, obviously they're gonna do uh, what their their uh, commanders say, but they also know that if something's illegal, immoral, or unethical, they they don't have to follow that order. So for the most part, I think all the camps are gonna go back to where they were regroup. But I think for the, the population writ large, they just need to be aware that, you know, there's not, not some coup coming here. Yeah. So Mark, where, well, I guess where I'd come down is that nothing has really changed. I agree with your points. Nothing's really changed. The 30 to 40% who are diehard Trump supporters will remain so. The 30 or 40% of the nation that can't stand President Trump, no matter what he does, are going to remain that way. And then you've got that 20 to 40 in the middle. And that's your potentially winnable constituency as you head into the November election. So we can certainly expect to see all this continue to, I mean, with, if you think about where we are in the current day, it's not going to get better in the next five to six months. It's only going to become more contentious, more politically charged. And uh, frankly, 2020 might be a uh, election. Certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about the right way to say it because I mean, it's going to be an election to remember regardless, but it's just going to be such a politically charged partisan period of time. The stakes feel like they're incredibly high for both sides of the aisle. 
The one thing though that, it, that really struck me is is how entrenched people's views are. I know this has been a talking point in the in both sides of the media, meaning conservative and liberal media for the last couple of years. There's no surprise here, but experiencing it firsthand on both sides of the aisle in Texas, I mean, it was fascinating because sometimes when something would happen and you talk to someone, they would treat a brand new data point like what's happened with George Floyd, the police response, or the use of the military with a shrug and say, look, I mean, I don't really care with this new piece of information. I still believe X or I still believe Y, depending on what side of the political aisle or spectrum you, you occupy. And so I think that's going to be another just challenging aspect going into November is that really no matter what happens, I think that so much of Americans' viewpoints is already baked in and dialed in. So um, it's going to, I think that's going to make it feel like you have to try even harder if you're one of the political parties or the, the media groups to uh, move the needle. So we'll, we'll see how this gets more and more charged. But so one question for you, when you were traveling around with the planes uh, all full when uh, coming and going from uh, Texas and back? Yeah, great question. You know, kind of back to the beginning of the podcast with the COVID stuff. Uh, they were not. I left out of Reagan National in Washington, D.C. last week. It was very minimal capacity, no very small line at security. You get on the airplane, it was about a third of the capacity. And then okay. uh, Dallas-Fort Worth is a much bigger airport. It was busier uh, when I was departing, but there's a lot of different destinations it's going to. And arriving at Reagan National looked like business had picked up a little bit in the week that I'd been gone. But the plane was still about the same capacity, about one third full. So plenty of room to stretch your legs. And like I said, the good news is, is that especially while you're on the plane and while you're actually in that mode of travel, the airlines are very good about ensuring that you're, you're wearing your, your mask and just taking common sense steps to mitigate the spread of the disease. So real quick, uh, yeah, I know we've got a limited amount of time for this special episode, but getting back to the issue at hand with General Mattis, you know, Mark, what kind of what are your thoughts? Do you think that it was worth Mattis's time to come off the bench for this? You know, as someone like myself who had recently retired, do you look at this and say, man, this is a great move for a retired four-star general, a past Secretary of Defense under the Trump administration to say something? Do you feel that he should have continued to keep his own counsel and not spoken out? I mean, I'm just kind of curious where you fall on this. Well, yeah, I mean, I I'd probably go against the grain on some of this stuff. I frankly would like to see uh, more uh, more of these uh, flags uh, come off the bench and let us know what they're thinking. Again, everybody wants to quickly jump to a partisan, but look, if you got that kind of experience and you've risen that rank, you've uh, pretty much shown or demonstrated you can work both sides of the aisle. And if you got some common sense, a uh, good insight on how problems should be solved, I Solomon's would like to hear that opinion. Now, you know. As soon as some, you know, flag officer says something, everyone wants to jump on it. Well, it's partisan, to the middle debate, blah, blah, blah. I think we need to come to a better grips on what that really means. And again, I go back to the thing. You can be political without being partisan. You know, it's kind of like if you're driving down the freeway at 90 miles an hour and someone yelled out the window, hey, you know, slow down. And, you know, say they're whatever from a Democratic Party. Would you say oh, that's partisan telling you not to speed on the freeway. No, they're just doing a common sense, uh, you know, looking out for your welfare. I mean, I think that's what we need more of, you know, from these experienced leaders. And you know, someone's like, Mattis, what do you say? He had 50 years of experience? I mean, it was just an incredible amount. I mean, why would we not want to hear what that man has to say? Yeah. And in fact, uh, like you, I was in the process of pulling up his statement because I want to make sure I'm going to the ground truth and the primary source. You know, that's one thing that's really kind of hurt my head with what Mattis chose to do. I, like you, regardless of 
politics or regardless of partisan affiliation, I would say, you know, look, if you've got firsthand account, if you've actually served in the administration, if you know what's going, like what it's been like behind closed doors, it, you don't have to be inflammatory, but I do think that there's a benefit to sharing some of your experience so that American voters, both the good and the bad, have a full, more full picture of what they could expect four more years of. It shouldn't be hidden from public view. And then you get the outcomes of the 2020 election. If Trump's reelected, people say, well, you know, gosh, I really wish I'd had more information to go off of. So like you, I tend to believe that more information, as long as it's, of course, unclassified, as long as it's not going to put national security or ongoing deliberations at risk, uh, is better than less. But the one reason Mattis, one of the reasons Mattis had said he declined to speak after leaving his role as Secretary of Defense was that he didn't want to confine his successors to you know, basically by he, he's calling their balls and strikes while he's out of office, right? So he wanted to keep his own counsel. He wanted to stay quiet so that President Trump and, and others in the administration could continue to do their best work. So it was noteworthy when he took a direct shot, meaning Mattis took a direct shot at Secretary Esper, the current Secretary of Defense, because he, you know, he even took him to task over this battle space dominance quote that he had used. And, and that struck me as a little odd. So I do think there's a little bit of reputation management on Mattis's part. I think for better or worse, he, he was in two years of, of the Trump administration. He, he largely went along with where President Trump needed him to go. And that's the right course of action as an appointed individual and member of the administration. If you can't do that, then you do have to leave. And ultimately, Mattis did leave. But to basically rake Esper over the coals for that comment uh, seemed a little bit like a one or two steps too far in my mind, because he is the current Secretary of Defense. And as you've noted, not just because of that, but also because of his decision to kind of walk that back with a written uh, statement and a press conference where President Trump grew very angry with Esper. And now it's rumored that Esper could very well be headed to the chopping block himself. You know, I mean, you've, you've weakened the sitting Secretary of Defense, and that was a past predecessor who took that shot. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I don't want to say collateral damage. That's not the right word. It was some uh, unfortunate uh, fallout that comes from uh, taking that measure. But again, if you're going to hear one part, I think you got to hear it all and, and uh, sort through it and uh, separate the facts from the, the chafe on, on that kind of stuff. I mean, let's let's also keep in mind, uh, General Mattis wasn't the only one to speak out. I and mean, we had Admiral Mullen. That was actually the first article I read, I think, uh, Tuesday uh, coming out. And then, of course, Admiral uh, Stravitas. Uh, I think all the services, you know, I know I saw something from the Air Force uh, commander and their uh, sergeant major as well on Twitter and then uh, the Marines. So everybody's kind of come up on the net with their opinions, thoughts on what's going on around the country, which personally I think is a good thing from uh, you know hearing from our leaders uh, what ground truth is there. Nobody's trying to hide anything or you know, score any points on that. We're all trying to make our country better and the best way to do it is to have an open dialogue across the force. I mean, frankly, I'd, I'd like to hear more of the, the Congress get involved and have a civil dialogue on, on all this and not trying to score points here, but I don't know if we can get there with Congress. So I guess as we wind down this special episode, one of my final thoughts would be, like I mentioned earlier, expect it to become more politically charged, more partisan as we head towards November. Uh, I suspect, you know, politics is is a raw, visceral type of sport. And so, what you're seeing right now and what you saw from members of the military, and to your point, even the active serving senior military leaders, the senior civilian appointees, you know, trying to create some distance from themselves and President Trump. You saw, as you referenced, the Republican senator from 
Alaska, I believe it is, Murkowski, right, Alaska. Um, yep. you know, who, who basically had made the point that in her statement today that uh, she was really glad to see Mattis speak out, that he was eloquent, and uh, it caused her to think more deeply about uh, what she has, based, my words, not hers, but put up with over the last three and a half years. Okay. So, it, like I said, it's a very visceral, raw sport, and it's all about perceived weakness and strength. And so that's what I'm sure we'll all be watching for over the next weeks and months as we head towards the election is, uh, is there enough perceived weakness? Do Republicans see that there may be a sufficient enough defeat come November that they truly break ranks with the president and move strongly away in an effort to save the party by cutting Trump loose? I mean, they, they embraced him in order to get a lot of their policy positions through. I think if they see that that's no longer tenable, then they would likely run away in order to try and preserve what they can from the November election, meaning preserve control of the Senate, possibly gain some seats back in the House. And if embracing Trump means that that's going to move out of reach, then then they would they would likely cut the president loose as long as they felt that he was sufficiently likely to lose in November. But, you know, so we'll have to wait and see. And of course, the opposite may happen. Maybe, uh, you know, some really good things as, as there, if there's a recovery from coronavirus before the election, if the economy kicks back up and it's moving strong, if, these, uh, if this period of unrest is quelled quickly, then what you could see, of course, is that they come roaring back and everyone's copacetic again, meaning those who are on the right side of the aisle head right back into uh, Trump's open embrace. Yeah, I just got to make a comment on that last part. I mean, as much as I would like to see uh, kick the corona problem there, I, I just I just can't see it going away anytime soon. In fact, I'm going to say I think it's going to get worse in the next uh, couple of weeks. Let's remember the Memorial Day weekend. Everybody was, you know, just throwing social distance out the window, swimming together, drinking together, and 14-day incubation period. I think we're going to start seeing a huge spike. What's today? The fourth, I'd say, about you know 10 more days. You're going to see a huge spike. And now throwing all the protesters getting together, it's just going to compound June, and uh, it's just going to continue to rise throughout the summer. So uh, getting unemployment under control or things back to any kind of normalized fashion, I just I just can't see from a scientific standpoint how that could possibly happen. I mean, somebody wants to say that warmer weather is going to make it go away. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not convinced that that's going to, you know, do anything for Corona. It, it's a virus and it's a deadly virus. It spreads very fast and I don't think we're going to see it slowing down anytime soon. Now, the plus side of that is Fauci announced, you know, millions of vaccines coming in what as early as, as the uh, late fall there. So that that be something to look forward to. But anything done in time for the election, I don't see it happening. Unfortunately, we're going to be spectators here as we have to wait and see what the result is. Just like you mentioned from a lot of the loosened restrictions around the country, the Memorial Day weekend and other, you know, travels picking back up, et cetera. The one thing, of course, that I think most people are aware of is that we never really did flatten the curve. If you go to the Johns Hopkins website where, you know, I think everyone's kind of universally adopted this as their official tracker. And you can see, you know, we're standing at just shy of 1.9 million cases of coronavirus that's been confirmed. The closest uh, country after us is Brazil with uh, just shy of 600,000. But when you look at the actual curve on a static time, meaning uh, the time is consistent across the bottom axis there. I mean, it, it didn't flatten out like it did for other countries. It's just continued to build and build and build. So we'll keep an eye on it. But I think if nothing else, other than pontificating on these things, uh, what we can do and listeners and everyone else can do is just continue to take those, those uh, smart steps to uh, mitigate your risk, mitigate your family's risk, wearing your mask, et cetera. 
as we continue to move forward. But man, um, just a fast paced week with a lot of news. That was the reason for us wanting to do a, a special episode on the fact that Mattis speaks out and everything else that's been going on. So we'll be back again on Tuesday with the part three of our three-part special on artificial intelligence. We're going to hear once again from Joe Larson, the uh, recent deputy director for Project Maven, as he talks to us about operationalizing artificial intelligence. Part one, we spoke with Steve Iscarovich from Booz Allen Hamilton, who talked to us about the basics of artificial intelligence. What does it mean and where is it going to take us? Part two, we talked with Joe, who talked to us about the AI strategy, especially with national security. And then here in this part three, we're going to talk about operationalizing it. How do you actually have that rubber hit the road and have the Department of Defense and the intelligence community get the most out of their engagement with artificial intelligence? So Mark, as always, a pleasure. For those of you who are listening, thanks for spending your time with Holding the Line. If you would and you haven't already, go ahead and and, uh, give us five stars, subscribe to the podcast, and we'll look forward to talking with you again on Tuesday. Mm -hmm.